Um, thank you for being here, especially those of you who have um, kind of stuck with us over the last number of weeks and this theme of just peacemaking. This is the third in the series of just peacemaking, and we have one more, not next Sunday because it's Mission Sunday, but the Sunday after that, uh, when we want to bring all of what we'll have been doing over the previous three sessions and, and try and ground it in our context and have some thoughts and discussion about that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a very quick recap of the last two weeks. So if this is a bit fast, um, and please forgive me, but it will allow us to move on into what I want to look at um, together this evening. So what we've been thinking about um, from week one is really the theme of the kingdom of God and um, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We discovered that the kingdom of God was a key part of Paul's preaching, as Acts 28 tells us. For two whole years, Paul stayed. This is when he was in uh, house arrest, under house arrest in his own rented house and welcomed all that came to him and he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course it was at the heart of Jesus' ministry um, because the, all the Gospels tell us that this was an important part of his, the core of his preaching. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God has come near. And we started to think about this, and we started to think about um, what this kingdom talk is really about. And it's really about God's reign, or the rule of God. And Jesus is the teacher, the model, and the ambassador of that rule for us. His coming changes everything. His life, death, and resurrection declare that God is king, and that God rules, and in this way. So the kingdom of God we think of as God at work making his rule known through Jesus' life and ministry, through the people called to follow as disciples of Jesus, and through Jesus' victorious death and resurrection. And we spent some time just thinking about how central, how important the life of Jesus is, and how sometimes we neglect that and move too quickly from birth to death, forgetting that he didn't just come to die, he came to live, and he came to live out the values of God's kingdom, that we might see it, understand it, and therefore be able to follow him. We also started to think about some aspects of his teaching, and particularly um, the Sermon on the Mount, and to think of it in terms of Jesus calling his disciples to him and saying, look, here is how things work in God's kingdom. When God is given his right to reign and his people acknowledge that, here here is how things play out. And he gives us the Beatitudes, which is really not just an expression of people being happy or anything like that, but an expression of where God's favor rests. And the Beatitudes give us that sense that God's favor rests upon the poor in spirit. It rests upon the meek. It rests upon the peacemakers. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's how it's ordered in the kingdom. And then he tells his disciples that living under God's rule works like this. And a lot of the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount seems to have two sides to it. You have heard that it has been said, but I say unto you. But some folks who have been spending a bit of time thinking about this would argue that actually there are three sides to what Jesus does in his teaching throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He does this, you have heard, but I say to you. And then there is a third element, which is go and. So, for example, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, here's what happens, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So, what are we going to do about this? So, if you're offering 
uh, your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother. So you have this kind of pattern that seems to develop in the Sermon on the Mount of you have heard, I say, so. And some people have put it in these kinds of terms. Now what's happening is Jesus restates the traditional way of thinking. And then he explores the implications of that, where that leads us. And where that tends to lead us is in a kind of downward spiral, actually. So he offers a transforming initiative. He gives instructions to his disciples as to what we actually choose to do that transforms the situation, rather than simply live stuck in our own cycle of lostness. And it works in lots of the different passages of the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, the whole way through it. Not just in the Uh, You have heard, I say so, but even in what appears to be just straightforward teaching. So, for example, no one can serve two masters. Here's what will happen. You'll hate one and love the other. So what transforms the situation? Well, stop being anxious. Seek first God's kingdom. Seek first God's reign and his righteousness, his justice. Um, A guy called Glenn Stassen, who's been very involved in all of this kind of thing, you won't be able to read that, but don't worry about it, has 14 of these triads, as he calls it, in the Sermon on the Mount. And he has identified 14 elements of Jesus' teaching that very clearly follow this pattern. Um, This is the way it has been. This is where it leads us. So if we're going to change the circumstances, this is what you need to do. And this is how it works in God's kingdom. So living under God's rule works like this. You take the initiative to change situations in keeping with those things of which God approves. So the Sermon on the Mount is not just about ideals. It's not just setting up some hopeful standard. It is actually about practice. It's about what we need to do and what we can choose to do that demonstrates and embodies God's reign, God's standards, God's justice, God's righteousness in our lives, in our relationships, and in our world. This last week, I've come across this quote on a number of time, number of occasions. David sent it to me earlier in the week, and, and ever since then, it just keeps popping up. This is a a quote from a letter that uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote to his brother-in-law around 1935 whenever he was, uh, had come back to Germany um, to take leadership of a seminary that had been established. And the seminary had been established because there was a group of people who uh, formed what was known as the Confessing Church in Germany at the time of the rise of National Socialism. And they, they did this because they felt, well, they, the reality was that many of the other churches um, were complicit in what was happening within the rise of National Socialism. For example, many of the more evangelical communities felt that Hitler's uh, freedom to preach the gospel that was given to churches was actually a good thing, and they allowed themselves uh, to take that as a justification, if you like, for going along with very much of the kind of stuff that was happening. And there's, there's a lot of the history of this written, but... Um, Bonhoeffer was one of those who sensed that there was something intrinsically evil in what was happening and that there needed to be a voice raised against it. And he was called to lead this seminary, a lot of which was done in various places because it had to keep moving because of um, persecution it experienced. And he makes this comment, the restoration of the church will surely come from a sort of new monasticism which is in common with the old only the uncompromising attitude of a life lived according to the Sermon on the Mount in the following of Christ. 
I believe it is now the time to call people together to do this. And his reference to monasticism is a reference to a way of life, a rule of life. He's not advocating, obviously, people cutting themselves off because he had actually just come back into the situation. He had the choice of either living in Britain or America, and he rejected that and came back to Germany to lead this because of his, his passion about what it meant to follow Christ. And he, he uses this expression that if we took the Sermon of the Mount, if we took Jesus seriously as the rule for our lives, then we would live differently in this kind of situation in Germany at that time. But it's true, I think, of just about any situation. So we've been thinking about the kingdom of God. We've been thinking about the Sermon on the Mount and that it's not just about ideals. It's about practices. Um, and then we started to think a little bit about vocation and profession. And very briefly, to put it in these terms, um, we think of vocational training as very practical training, generally think of it as practical training for some kind of job or role. We think of professional training as having that kind of academic input that makes it slightly different. Um, and we talked a little bit last week about people in professions and things, and I think I was reasonably generous. Um, but interestingly, these terms are generally used more in terms of religious connotations. And my, my suggestion last week was that actually we very often as evangelicals are much stronger on the profession element than we are on the vocation element. We are often more caught up and concerned about how someone professes their faith, how they declare it, whether they declare it, and whether they declare it accurately, than we are about how they live it. And the, the idea of being summoned to a particular way of life, a particular lifestyle that is modeled for us by Jesus should be fundamental to our thinking of what it means to be a Christian. And while I'm sure it is often there, whether it is there as much as our emphasis on profession of faith is questionable. We also thought about this idea that really our calling is to live out in a practical way our discipleship in a kind of incarnational way. And what do we mean by that? Well, we thought about how the fact that there were many people who thought that Jesus was all God. He wasn't really human. He couldn't have been. He couldn't walk in water and be human. You know, you can't do that kind of thing. So he had to be a spirit who looked like a human being. He had to be God appearing to be human. And on the other hand, there were lots of people who said, well, he was all man. Actually, he wasn't really God. He was just Jesus of Nazareth. Some of these stories are, are exaggerated. Um, but he clearly was a man of great power and great influence, and he died a very worthy death and all the rest of it. And they see him as all man. And the, the truth of the incarnation is that he is both. He is not either or. He is not 50% of one and 50% of the other, but he is God in flesh. And that's what we believe in that. And discipleship is really modeling that. It's, it's not trying to be God, obviously, but it's taking seriously the pattern of Jesus' life what it means to live under the kingdom of God and giving it flesh, living it out in our own lifestyles, in our own choices, and in our own relationships. And we thought about a number of Bible passages that illustrate this kind of thing of living out the faith. So we thought of John 13 and this particular section of that larger section where Jesus says to his disciples, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. No servant is greater than his master. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And discipleship is following Jesus. Incarnational discipleship is about embodying in our own practices the kinds of things that Jesus commands us to do and the kinds of things that he illustrated. And whether you look at Paul's teaching, which is very similar, it's very grounded, it's very embodied, it's not idealistic, 
whether you listen to what John says, which is the same kind of thing. It's very real. It's very embodied. It's not just about ideals out there. It's about practices. You get the same kind of theme. And we just thought about this in in terms of church life. and, And we thought that if perhaps we concentrated more and more on the vocation to live out the life as Jesus has, then maybe we would have more emphasis on covenanting together rather than worrying about basis of faith. And we talked about that afterwards, uh, a group of us, uh, and whether people agreed with that or not. But that's the view I'm certainly of more these days, that covenanting together and how we express that has uh, a much greater significance than we've given to it. And in fact, this church has such a covenant in its constitution. And I read it last week. I'm not going to try and read it all again. If you want a copy of it, I'm quite sure you can have a copy of it. And we have both in this church. We have a covenant which we make about our relationships together and how we will live, as well as a basis of faith, if you like, a summary of key doctrines. But here are the kind of things that we have covenanted together, whether you know it or not, if you're a member of the church. These are the things that we have covenanted together, agreed to do as a holy brotherhood to advocate the truth of God and proclaim the riches of his sovereign mercy, as a brotherhood, and I'm sure that includes the sisters as well. This was written in 1934, I think it was. That by sympathy and counsel, we will help one another in the Christ-like and heavenward life. That's what we have agreed to do. That we will bear one another's burdens. That we will exercise tender-hearted, tolerant, forgiving kindness. That's what we agreed to do as members of this church. That we will avoid everything of harsh and ungenerous criticism. That's what the covenant says. And that we will recognize in each other fellow members of the body of which our risen Savior is the head. And I think that's really healthy. But I just wonder how often we reflect on that and how often we allow that covenant commitment to shape the way in which we think about and talk about and deal with each other, even in this place And we asked the question, are we willing for this kind of commitment? Are we equipped for this kind of commitment? And are we willing to be accountable? So that's the background of the last couple of weeks. Thinking about the kingdom of God, thinking about the Sermon on the Mount, thinking about the challenge to embody the practices that Jesus teaches in our own lives as incarnational discipleship, and thinking about the way that works out in our relationships with each other, that covenanting together as Christians in the way we will live out is at least as important as any statement of faith, maybe more so. So tonight I want to just move it on a little bit further and think about just peacemaking itself. We finally come to it after the last two weeks. The concept comes through this guy here, Glenn Stassen, uh, who's a... Uh, a Christian ethicist and has written a number of books on this kind of thing and particularly his book Kingdom Ethics which is a a fascinating book where they he and this other guy David Gushy unpack a lot of the implications of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount and Glenn um, has made a couple of comments which I've summarized here that Christians in the first few centuries saw the Sermon on the Mount as the central statement of Christian faith and life no scripture was more quoted and referenced by Christian theologians in the period before the Nicene Council in the 4th century. It was much more a sense of the creed by which they lived before creeds actually had to be written. He says, The Sermon on the Mount is not about human striving towards high ideals, but about God's transforming initiative to deliver us from the vicious cycles in which we get stuck. But it's not just the Sermon on the Mount. The point is that wherever you go in the New Testament, you find the same kind of emphasis and the same kind of principles. You may remember from the very first night, we looked at a very, in, 
we looked at the kind of chronology as best we know of the writing of the books of the New Testament. And certainly it would appear that quite a few of Paul's letters were written long before the Gospels were written, including the book of Romans, which is probably at least earlier or contemporaneous with Matthew and Mark's Gospel. And when you do some comparison, as he has done and others have done, with the kind of teaching, you find that there is a perfect harmony here. There is not some kind of discord, you know, that you have to concentrate on the Sermon on the Mount and forget about Paul's teaching and Paul's... The whole of the New Testament is of one with this. So here are some examples of how this actually worked, comparing the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount with Paul's preaching. And you might like to open your Bibles at Matthew chapter 6, which you will find if you're using the uh, church, uh, the Bibles in the pews. Uh, On page 970, we'll, we'll... be working around that, page 970, around there. And also Romans chapter 12, um, which is page 1139. And if you can kind of keep both of those. What we're going to do is just have a look at some of the ways in which these things uh, appear both in uh, the Sermon on the Mount and in Paul's teaching, particularly on, uh, in Romans. But you can find the same kind of thing as you, as you work through um, the other New Testament letters. So what are the sort of things? Well, At the very heart of it, Jesus is saying to his disciples in the Beatitudes that you need to acknowledge that we are separated from God. You need to acknowledge that we are being drawn into God's kingdom. There is a problem here, and we get drawn into it by God's grace, and we need to be realistic about that. So hence, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see God. But you get the same kind of thing in Romans chapter 12, where Paul, in the light of all the ways in which he has unpacked the gospel, says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So the response to all that the Romans has unpacked uh, for us up to this point, about the whole nature of our human sinfulness, about our justification in Christ through his death on the cross, begins to, to take root, to hit the ground with this phrase, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing, recognizing that it is grace that makes the difference in who you are. So the, the teaching all starts from the same basic premise. The practices are very similar. So, for example, Jesus says, you know, go and talk, be reconciled with one another. That's what he says, if there is a problem. And you find that in Matthew 5, uh, verses 21 to 26, one of the passages that I had on the screen a little earlier on. You have heard that it was said, do not murder, and anyone who murders is subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject uh, to judgment Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled. But you find similar kinds of themes in uh, Romans chapter 12 um, and verse 18 uh, and in other aspects of Paul's letters, but I'll I'll just highlight this one where he says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, not just with your brothers and sisters in Uh, in the life of the church, and there is the same kind of emphasis. Um, Jesus talks about not being vengeful, but doing something that will transform the situation. Matthew 5 and verses 38 and 39 in particular um, summarize this. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. You have heard, but I tell you, so if someone strikes you in the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. And while we don't have time this evening to unpack the meaning of all of that, it's quite clear you have this pattern. 
but you have similar kinds of themes in Romans chapter 12 and verses 17 to 21, where Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So you have similar themes there. Uh, delivering justice, a, a kind of general phrase um, for thinking about God's righteousness and, and, and working towards seeing that in practice. And if you think, for example, of Matthew chapter 6, I'm only looking at the ones that I've, I've highlighted in bold on the screen, but there are others. Uh, and verses 19 uh, to 34, there's a whole section there where Jesus says to his disciples, don't be storing up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven. Uh, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Uh, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then he talks at the end of that section about you cannot serve both God and money. And the, the whole idea is that invest your time, invest yourself in the things that, that matter, the things of God that matter, the issues of justice and of righteousness and living well. And Paul has similar kinds of things in Romans 12, and verse 13 or verse 16 there. Um, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. These kind of things actually matter. Love your enemies. Affirm their valid interests as well as your own. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 44 uh, to 48, I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise in the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Paul picks up a similar theme. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Other people's interests matter, not just our own. And we have to uh, work towards that and recognize that. Pray for your enemies and persevere in prayer. And Jesus, in this Matthew 5 passage we were looking at, talks about praying for those who persecute you. And Paul emphasizes a similar thing in Romans 12, encouraging people to pers persist in prayer, persevere in prayer, and not to give up. Don't judge, but repent and forgive. Again, Matthew 6, uh, 12 and 14, there are references to this kind of thing, not least in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And Jesus says, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men your sin, their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And in Romans 12, and certainly after that in Romans 14, Paul picks up this whole theme of judging people and how inappropriate that is for disciples and followers of Jesus. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. And this is an interesting one which I wouldn't have particularly thought of or, or thought made very much uh, of an issue. But in fact, all that Paul says and all that Jesus says, that, that Matthew 5 verse 1 is simply a reference to Jesus calling the disciples to him. 
And Romans 12 is full of the issue of what you do together as a community. These are not private practices. This is not just about how I think as an individual. This is about how we together follow Christ and embody his teaching and his life. So if you compare the Sermon on the Mount with Paul's teaching, just those couple of chapters in Romans before you go even any further, you have this list of things which are practices that Paul is teaching the church, that Jesus is teaching uh, his disciples, which we are challenged and called as followers of Jesus to embody, to practice ourselves. They're about lifestyle choices. They're about decisions that we make, not simply about beliefs that we hold in our head, not simply about heartfelt beliefs that we Um, profess to others, but practice so that we live out, as Jesus lived out, these kinds of things. One of the interesting things that happened um, was that this guy, Glenn Stassen, um, attended a conference of Christian ethicists, people who think good thoughts. And it was just before the Iraq War Uh, They were all Americans, I think, and they had gathered together to discuss the impending Iraq war and what their Christian response to it should be. And Glenn says that inevitably what happened in the conference is what happens in most of these conferences. Eventually, it divides into two camps. It divides into a camp of peacemakers, or sorry, uh, pacifists, um, who basically feel that it really doesn't matter what is happening war is wrong and the Christian response is to say that war is wrong and that we can have nothing to do with it. And the other camp is the just war theorists, people who say there are principles of a just war and if those principles are applied, then as Christians, we can support the state in this war. And he said, in these kind of conferences, this is ultimately what happens. And he he came away really very frustrated. And he thought, you know, the, the thing about this is that actually everybody in that room would prefer to avoid war, everybody. But we end up just dividing into two camps. We either justify it or we say all war is wrong. The Christian response should be that of a pacifist. And what he did was he started to think about the seven principles of a just war. I don't know whether you've come across, there are actually seven or eight. They're, They're phrased slightly differently sometimes, but they're pretty universally understood to work like this. That A war is just, and and therefore the Christian church can support a war if the following principles are in place. That it's a last resort. That all non-violent options have been exhausted. That it's waged by a legitimate authority as the definition of the difference between, say, terrorism and a just war. Um, That it's to redress a wrong suffered. It must have right intentions. It's not uh, to conquer Uh, and to control for the sake of it. It must have a reasonable chance of success. In other words, you don't go into a war to see lives lost in a lost cause. That could not be a just war. It needs to be waged to re-establish peace. That the violence used must be proportional to what is required to achieve your end and not gratuitous. And that it must discriminate between combatants and non-combatants. Those are the general principles of whether a war is just. And some of those are carried over into how you decide whether something has been a war crime or not. And Glenn began to think, if they're the seven principles of a just war, 
what would the seven principles of peacemaking look like? And on the basis of all the stuff that we looked at over the last few weeks, and particularly this evening, these are the seven principles, biblical principles, that he came up with, which emerge out of the Sermon on the Mount and the teaching of Paul throughout the New Testament. That if we are heading towards a war situation, peacemaking requires that we affirm common security, interests, and concerns between us and our enemy. What is there that we have in common that we need before we think about simply blasting our enemy? That we are willing to take independent initiatives to avoid war, if at all possible, to avoid conflict, if at all possible. Like Jesus says, go and be reconciled. That we're willing to do things that might make a difference that we are absolutely willing to talk to our enemy before we fight them. That we are committed to seeking justice, God's righteousness in every situation. That we acknowledge that life is full of these vicious cycles. We get ourselves stuck in our sin and downward spirals, so we have a commitment, a responsibility to be involved in peacemaking. That we curtail judgmental propaganda and make amends if we need to make amends and that we work with citizens groups for the truth this idea of working with others now out of Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount out of all the stuff that's paralleled in the epistles and all the rest of it they pull together these seven principles or these seven steps of just peacemaking and began to lobby governments using these principles, not expecting them to be particularly Christian or particularly impressed that they have Christian roots. But they come out, they emerge out of what it means to embody the practices that Jesus embodied. And instead of simply being in two camps of those who say, well, there shouldn't be a war, and those who say the issue is whether it's a just war or not, that people began to come together to lobby government on very clear issues, practices. Are you willing to go and find out what the issues are with Saddam Hussein before you start blasting Baghdad? Are you willing to find out what the issues are that need to be addressed, that we might even have in common as concerns that we can work on? What independent initiatives can we take? And part of Glenn's background in this comes from the fact that his father was governor of, and I mean, people's lives are very often tied up in these things as well. His father was governor of uh, Minnesota for many years, ran for president on a number of occasions. They're a family who originate in Germany and escaped some of the really horrible stuff that happened during the Second World War and had a deep sense of the need to repay in some way in civic society this kind of thing. And his father ended up as the negotiator on behalf of the American president in the disarmament talks between America and the Russians, which led to the disarmament agreements that began to be put in place. So this is coming out of a very real, very practical life experience, which is saying, instead of us simply building our nuclear stockpiles, we should be going, as a government, willing to take the initiative and talk to the Russians, even if there are risks associated with that. And we as Christians should be in the forefront of doing that. And as it happened, Baptists be willing to be in the forefront and do it, as it happened. So this thing is not just about ideas. This is about practice. And it can sometimes make a difference. Now, the thing that 
is recognized in all of this is it doesn't guarantee peace. It doesn't mean a war will be averted. But just peacemaking is about putting our efforts into averting conflict and resolving conflict wherever we can because that's part of a Christian calling and a Christian response to living faithfully following Jesus. And one of the questions I thought was very interesting was if we were to take those seven principles uh, of just peacemaking and think about writing a, church co- a new church covenant around them, what would it look like? That I will affirm my common interests and concerns with you. That I will take independent initiatives if we have a conflict situation in the church. I will take an independent to try and resolve that. That I will talk with you. Probably enemy wouldn't be in there in a church covenant, but you know what I mean. That I will seek your interests and that you get justice if you feel wronged. That I will acknowledge that what happens when we have conflict takes us down and I'll participate. I am committed to participating in being at peace and peacemaking with you. That I will not say anything that defames you or, or, or be part of any gossip that destroys your character or makes life more difficult. I will make amends. I will be prepared to make amends if I have done wrong. And I will work with this church community for the truth in every situation. What would a covenant, even just taking those basic seven principles, emerging out of the Sermon on the Mount, emerging out of Paul's teaching, what would that look like if that was redrafted as a church covenant? My commitment to you will be this practical. It's really quite a challenge. But the bigger issue for us as we think about this is, to what degree would applying just peacemaking practices in the church enable us to understand how we might contribute on the national or the global stage? And I'm more interested, obviously, in the national, the local stage at this, at this time. Many years ago, I was involved with an organization called the CONI. Some of you will have heard of it. Some of you are probably too young to have heard of it. And what we did was we, we wrote this little book called For God and His Glory Alone, a deliberately provocative title. Um, working with the idea of for God and Ulster, but for God and his glory alone. And saying to our own community, what are the kind of things we need to be thinking about? And as we reflected on this many years later, we realized that what we did was we presented principles. Principles about love, about the importance of forgiveness and reconciliation, about the importance of peace and citizenship. And the difference between what we were trying to do at that stage and this Just Peacemaking initiative is that Just Peacemaking recommends practices. Because too often our Christianity and our Christian life is full of ideals. It's full of things we believe, but not necessarily full of things that we are committed to doing. And perhaps if we had approached it in a slightly different way, we might have been better equipped to give people much more guidance in regard, or challenge in regard to practices that we should follow. They were implied in what we said, but they didn't work out in quite the same kind of way. And so we are at a stage in this community where there was a document published by uh, Stormont and the parties there, a shared future. And uh, its key quote, its key section is that its desire is the establishment over time of a normal civic society in which all individuals are considered as equals, where differences are resolved through dialogue in the public sphere, and where all people are treated impartially. A society where there is equity, respect for diversity, and a recognition of our interdependence. And the question for me is, 
as Christians, as followers of Jesus, who in his life modeled the reign of God, the righteous justice of God in his actions, in his dealing with people, what's my responsibility and what's my commitment in this community at this time? We had the recent killing of the prison officer which reminded us of the dark days that we used to live through. Again, it's just a fact I suppose some of you are maybe almost too young to remember some of it. But certainly the 70s and the early 80s were some terrible times and terrible things done. And many of us as Christians struggled to know what our response should be and how we could or should respond in these situations. It's not easy. But the fact that we don't have as much of that, tragic as the killing of David Boyd was, doesn't mean that our society is not desperately sectarianly divided, which it is that we still harbor many fears about each other within this community and still at times don't really quite know how to relate. So what as Christians following Jesus, called to embody the practices that Jesus demonstrates and teaches through the Sermon on the Mount, what kind of actions are we called to take? What would applying the principles of just peacemaking look like for us as Christians to model Christ in a sectarian society, in a divided society. Malone Avenue is a fairly quiet place. I understand that. There's not a lot happens in Malone Avenue, except the noise that we create on Sunday morning and Sunday evening. But it's not true of the communities in which we live, and it's not true of our society as a whole. And therefore, where we want to go with is to ask that question, and ask that question in a more open and discussive way as we come to the last in our series. But that's just what I want to leave you with this evening. If the kingdom of God is among us, if God's reign is among us, if Jesus calls his disciples together and says, this is how it works in the kingdom of God, these are the kind of practices that we engage in to transform situations, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for us as a community living in Northern Ireland at this time? It's worth reflecting on.